Welcome back to Romance Ever After. I am your ever chaotic host, Allie Parker, and I'm coming to you with an extra special episode. Um, I know you're probably sitting there right now going, mm, what the hell is this episode coming out in January? Should it have come out in December? And you know what? Maybe. But due to a number of reasons, um, it's coming out now. But most importantly, I really don't think this movie, anything about it makes it super duper a Christmas movie. You know, barring one or two things, this movie could have taken place at any time of the year. So with that in mind, let's get into today's episode. Today, I am joined by two authors. The first is Jillian Graves. Jillian is a paranormal romance and romantic suspense author who likes to write about witches, murder, and high-heat supernatural shenanigans. Her unpublished novel, Death Cat, won third place in the RWA Mystery Suspense Chapter Daphne du Maurier Award. She currently lives in Los Angeles with her three cats, Pugsley, Salem, and Luna, and her one human, Bill. I'm also joined today by Andy Christopher. USA Today bestselling author Andy J. Christopher writes sharp, witty, sexy contemporary romance about complex people finding happily ever after. Her work has been featured in NPR, Cosmopolitan, The Washington Post, Entertainment Weekly, and The New York Post. Prickly heroines are her hallmark, and she is the originator of the stern brunch daddy. Andy lives in the nation's capital with French bulldog, a, a stockpile of Campari, and way too many bucks. Welcome, Jillian, and welcome back, Andy. Um, so let's get started uh, before we dive into Love Actually. Jillian, I would love to hear your, your history with romantic comedies um, and tropes that you love. Uh, so I was in middle school and high school during like the perfect like resurgence or, or maybe I'm going to call it a golden age of rom-coms with uh, Drew Barrymore, Julia Stiles, uh, we get into the Kate Hudson. My first rom-com that I was ever obsessed with was She's All That, which was I was looking up the dates of it. And that's like 1999, which is also the same year as Ever After, which I was also fully obsessed with. And then I think... Yeah. 10 Things I Hate About You was the same year as well. Yes, it was because I actually had a half day for Ooh. school and I had a free voucher and I went on the very <laughs> first day <laughs> to go see <laughs> 10 Things I Hate About You. It was a Wednesday. I remember this very clearly. Very, very lucky. That was my like, for 10 Things I Hate About You was the first time I had like a celebrity crush on anyone to, with Heath Ledger, of course, to the oh, point yeah. that like, I remember cutting out his photo spread, which is in Vanity Fair, where he was, uh, it was for whatever movie he was doing afterwards, which was like a serious movie, but it's him, white t-shirt, jeans on like a tree or something like <laughs> lounging there. And I stuck that in the front of my binder. Uh, oh, so <laughs> I was like first nice. crush because of, of 10 Things I Hate About You, first CD purchased because of She's All That and, uh, Still love Sixpence None the Richer. Great album. Uh, and then, yeah, I, I that kind of just like started uh, my my love affair with rom-coms. And I, nice. I think I kind of grew up with them at a good time. Yeah, yeah. The, I would say like the late 
late 90s, early aughts was like kind of like the great crescendo into just like really, especially really like female focused Mm -hmm. Mm rom-coms and their desires because, and I'll talk about this in this fucking movie, Um, but (laughs) this fucking movie, (laughs) but a lot of rom-coms, we we think about romance as being something that's more female driven and focused on female desires because women love them so much. Mm -hmm. However, the extreme history of romantic comedies are these stories that are like generated and focused really on the male perspective. Just we don't we miss it because we've got these charismatic women who are like really selling these stories. But in the late 90s and the early aughts, we've got these like great, more female focused and driven stories, which is why it, it was so awesome. Okay, well, so that's that's your history. Let's talk about tropes that we love. Like I know Andy loves a good enemies to lover. Yeah, I do, yeah. <laughs> what about you, Jillian? Uh, I love enemies to lovers, especially rivals to lovers, because it just sets them up like from the beginning. Um, I love anything that is forced proximity, like the more forced together, like a snowed in situation is my absolute favorite, um, which they could have could have had in this uh, in love, actually, and made it a lot better. But whatever. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, a fake dating. Um, that's great marriage convenience, which doesn't happen as much in rom-coms as it does in romance novels, but I love them there too. You really should. There there was one Chris O'Donnell, like I think marriage of convenience rom-com that I can remember, but that's the only one I can think of like that, that made an impact on me. Yeah. There's like the proposal with. Oh yeah. I I did a, I actually did a like, not that kind of guy was like sort of a take on the proposal. Um, But it was, it was different because they got drunk married. And so (laughs) (laughs) we love a good drunk married story. I mean, that's, that's another favorite trope of mine. And I've done it in two books at this point. Um, (laughs) And I just, like, I'm very, like, I'm very fascinated and addicted to that trope, even though it would be a real nightmare in real life. Like truly, truly would not want, (laughs) would not want. But yeah, I mean, I'm really into like Nancy Myers esque sort of anything that were anything with like a great kitchen and like mm. a lady who knows what she wants. Like I would watch like I know it's problematic, but I would watch It's Complicated twenty times <laughs> before I will be I will will watch Love Actually again because it's actually female focused and like driven. Yeah, and, and so here's so here's my 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 big thing. Nancy Myers is insanely watchable. Mm-hmm. She has, I mean, like from her writing, her writing is very insanely specific and it's very female focused. But then like when she got into directing too, it was just like, it all came together in such a beautiful way. Because again, she's she's got, she's got a very specific vision and she writes to it and she directs to it. And it, even, even though like in real life, I would never want to, be around any of her characters nope. like it would drive me <laughs> no. up a wall no. but like I can sit down and watch I I put off watching the holiday for like two decades and when I like find mm-hmm. when I finally watched it last year I was like okay wow I don't want to be near any of these people but this is actually a really fun movie because mm-hmm. it's just 
it just seems cozy and warm. And even in the silliness, like nobody is like ridiculously embarrassed, which is like kind of like the glory of her movies. Like they can be silly, but like nobody is like directly harmful in their silliness. Yeah. I would want to hang out with Kate Win- Winslet and the old man. Well, yeah. Yeah. Those are I the only people. So. <laughs> I mean, and Jack Black. Jack the Black, only yeah. people in that yeah. movie that I would want to hang out with. But I could have done without Cameron <laughs> or Mr. Napkinhead. I don't care. Come for me if you want. <laughs> he, like, he, I think he's more attractive in that movie than he is in most of his movies, Jude Law. But, oh, um, I agree. Because I don't usually get the Jude Law thing, but in that movie, I got it. I was like, oh, sad widower. <laughs> I get it. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I, I'm really into like, I think it's because, you know, we've been home for two almost two years. I, I'm like really into like kitchen porn. So mm. like a Nancy Byers movie is always like, you know, real estate. It's always going to be mm-hmm. my thing. So that's like, that's my fixation right now. Yeah. I I can respect that. Yeah, she's got some great kitchens. And I I feel like I heard, like, they're based on, like, her actual kitchens, which... Lucky her. Right? Yeah. Okay. All right. So now that we've talked about things that we like, (laughs) let's get into this awful awful movie <laughs> so bad I'm glad I'm glad I like I wasn't like on the show with like false pretenses because I like I was like I hope I hope she doesn't think I like this movie <laughs> I know mean, she doesn't <laughs> I was really worried when you sent me the email asking me like oh do you do you really love this and I was like no I was like oh no is that okay I just wanted to be sure before I got on here and just like started <laughs> trashing it infinitely um, because I did that to You've Got Mail with, with Denise and Denise really loves it. <laughs> and, like I could like see me making points at times and then like, but she's like, but I still really love it. I was like, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> oh, for Denise. <laughs> but that's why we're friends now. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's get into Love Actually, which came out in 2003. And I, before I, bef- I would like to preface this with, I really used to like Love Actually. Like, Same. I, I watched it a lot. When my mom sent me off to college, she sent me off with her copy of the DVD. I watched this I watched this movie a whole hell of a lot. I actually own a copy of it. So like when I when I come to y'all and say that I hate this movie now, know that it's from a place of having watched it obsessively. Um <laughs> So this movie came out in 2003, uh, right before the holidays to mix success, especially in the States. Like a lot of the reviews were like, eh, I don't know. Um, it did worldwide. It, it made its budget back and then some like gangbusters. Um, but, you know, for a really long time, um, people were just like eh, about it. Uh <laughs> In the oral history that came out in Entertainment Weekly, Richard Curtis said he got the idea for doing this from the fact that he lost out to Pulp Fiction um, when Notting, when the script for Four Weddings and a Funeral um, lost against Pulp Fiction in the Oscars. He was like, you know, there's really never been like, uh, like an ensemble kind of 
romance like that and it would totally lend to it and so apparently that's like where the idea of this bloomed up from can we um, stop for a moment and talk about how richard curtis hates women like he really does oh yes he he more importantly he hates english women <laughs> he hates english women he also hates american women because i feel like notting hill he's hating on an american woman there too he, I, I think it's, it's, he's perversely obsessed with American women. Yes. I think he's, he's perversely obsessed with the idea of an American woman and juxtaposing that against English women. But like, I think he sincerely hates English women because every time he talks about an English woman, like look at Emma, Emma Thompson's character. Mm-hmm. She, he says that Joni Mitchell, you know, taught her, her, his cold English wife how to love like what the hell is that this this whole movie is him is comparing one woman to the other like just constantly Mm -hmm. like shot for shot like here's a what we call like a schlubby woman and then here's like the hot woman and we have to see them next to each other and then Mm -hmm. i mean annie you're talking about like how he like what do you think's about american women and we have essentially like a whole softcore porn setup (laughs) with (laughs) the american women (laughs) like what is what is going on here? Uh, it, it, oh, well, let's start with that story. <laughs> let's start it's... with let's start with Colin and his 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 pursuit of American women. Okay, because I think at the end of the day, Colin is a stand-in for Richard Curtis. Um, yeah, he just he wants to move to America where girls will like his accent and touch his penis. Yeah. Like- <laughs> so, so Colin is a delivery guy and waiter, cater waiter, and you know he's just like doesn't really have much to him. Um, he's played by what's Nick's name last name? I don't remember. His first name is Nick. I do know that, and he's been a comedy actor for a while. I used to really like him, but then he said some like really gross stuff around when he had to shoot in hmm. um the Caribbean for uh, Death in Paradise hmm. about how he felt like his kids were getting like to Caribbean um and that's why he wanted to yeah yeah and that's why he wanted to stop doing the show so like uh, yeah um (laughs) do not like do not like at all um but anyway so this character Colin you know he's striking out with all the women in England obviously because he has zero game and he's just being like a total ass so after being turned down by the caterer who he indirectly insults her food he decides that the problem isn't him it's English women and he needs to go to America and you know he rents out his apartment and he only packs condoms because apparently you can't buy condoms in the states Um, and he books a ticket to the first place he can think of, and it's Wisconsin. <laughs> As a Minnesotan, I'm so offended by this on so many levels. Like he couldn't even make it to the land of Prince to Minneapolis. He he had to go to Milwaukee. Well, like, and here's the thing: I remember listening to the audio commentary because, again, I used to be obsessive about this movie, um, and I have watched it with the commentary on. Um, he just chose Wisconsin because he thought it sounded sounded exotic he did not know it was wisconsin oh i, th- I thought that was like the <laughs> whole kind of joke is that he's going somewhere in the middle of a snowstorm and it's no not he be thought that wisconsin, wisconsin was cool and not wisconsin 
That's what he says in the audio commentary. If that's a lie or not, I do not know, <laughs> but that's what he says in the audio commentary. Um, so let's flunk so- him in geography. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and so he goes to Wisconsin and he lands in Milwaukee and it's the middle of a snowstorm and he goes to the first bar that he can find and it's like podunk like Milwaukee is a city okay he's he's more likely to get jumped yeah in Milwaukee than he is to get jumped by three girls yeah, but, like, he's in, in this bar in Milwaukee that looks more like a middle-of-nowhere honky-tonk. Mm-hmm. And he just finds these girls who are sitting around in their parkas, in their parkas, inside the bar. Didn't take off their coats. Um, and, you know, they're just so enamored with his accent. And it's, like, four, like, really hot women who at the time we're all considered all pretty young and we're considered like kind of hot girls that you would like find in like Maxim and stuff like that. So, you know, he's getting his whole dreams fulfilled and they're like, you can come stay with us. We're sorry. We don't have a bed, but you can share a bed with us. And like, you know, eventually like all his dreams come true. Colin is successful and he finds, he finds the American, the loose American women of his dreams. And they go off to the apartment and we get the silhouette of them stripping him because, of course, Colin is going to have an orgy. And the conclusion of Colin's story is he comes back to England with Shannon Elizabeth, the woman who he, like, apparently truly connects with. And she brings her sister, Denise Richards, who immediately kisses his buddy, Tony. Um, Because American... Yeah, <laughs> because American women are just that forward mm-hmm. and promiscuous, and just like you know, we're going to kiss everybody we meet on the lips. I mean, it's so offensive, mm-hmm. but also maybe I should go to London to get laid. Like maybe that <laughs> the answer. Like if there's ever a post-pandemic, maybe I should be like, I'm going to go be the loose American woman of someone's dream. <laughs> you can just fulfill some English man's fantasy. Exactly. No one else. I mean, according to at least one of my friends, she had better game over there than here, so. I I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, my game is so rusty, I'm going to have to try it out, like, abroad first. (laughs) Take it on the road before you debut it back at home. (laughs) I I will say I enjoyed my time living in London, so I I would recommend it. (laughs) All right, so, yes. So that, I think... I think of them all, though, that's the trashiest story. Um, it is. It is. It's the absolute worst. And even, like, the that's... stand-ins were kind of, even, like, the humping stand-ins were kind of sweet. See, yeah. I would say that's the sweetest story out of I the agree. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just like they're having a conversation while they're, like, in the nude. It was just, it's a lovely, it's a lovely sort of, like. And, it, and like, nobody is being, like, gross or awkward. Um, you know, he, he nicely asked her out for a drink and she says yes. And he immediately like says, thank you. And like, he says like how nervous he normally is about asking people out, but she feels like more comfortable. And I think the whole impetus about that is supposed to be like, they were on like the set of like eyes wide shut or something like that, which Mm -hmm. at that time was like super notorious. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Movie. I wouldn't call it popular, but it was notorious because, you know, it was like this super sexy film and it was like the last movie that Tom and Nicole did and it was sex clubs and all this other shit. And so, you know, that was like very much in the zeitgeist and in like the communal brain. And now, like 20 years later, it's super weird to watch these two people <laughs> do this because <laughs> movies are so sexless now so like, sexless like I was like are they on that set of like 365 days part two <laughs> I was watching it with my boyfriend last night and he was like what are they don't have stand-ins in porn and I was like this this isn't a porn this is that's not what they're doing <laughs> this is an actual movie <laughs> Like, that's how sad it is. Like, nobody has sex in movies anymore. So, like, it makes no sense to have, like, naked stand-ins. So that's kind of, like, the sad part of the story. But otherwise, it's really sweet. And they go out for a drink. And they have one nice kiss. And he doesn't, like, try and force the kiss. She leans in because she knows he wants the kiss. And they have the kiss. And she says, like, the super cheesy, all I want for Christmas is you. I love it. I love it. And... You know, the conclusion of their story is that they get engaged, but it's the most, it's the only story that makes the most sense on this five week timeline that we are given mm-hmm. because yeah. everything else makes no sense. None. <laughs> I no, was- sense of- no sense at all. No, none at all. Um, Especially when you start to part- really pay attention to like the countdown of the weeks. I was um, constantly confused by the timeline and like not and when they intercut, you would think like one storyline had progressed multiple days, but then the other storyline is still in the same day or night. Like it was very confusing. Mm-hmm. Very confusing, especially with I would say especially the probably the most confusing one for the timeline is either Jamie and Aurelia or my dude learning how to play the drums like yeah that... you're not gonna learn how to play the drums in five weeks sir no what's it even not even weeks? just like he it's not even it's so he doesn't okay so <laughs> that story is daniel sam joanna and carol um so daniel is the widower of uh joanna and Sam is Joanna's son and, you know, he's his stepdad or whatever. So they have a very much more informal relationship than you would expect for like father and son. It's a little bit more buddy, buddy. And we come in on the story where Daniel has just, you know, his wife has just died. And the way that they introduce that he's a widower is just like so flippant because <laughs> because Emma Thompson's character is trying to get him off the phone. She's like, I'm sorry, your wife died, but I can't really talk right now. <laughs> And, and it's the only thing Emma Thompson does wrong in the entire movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, we get this, like, really kind of sap, sad, happy funeral for Joanna where they play her off to the Bay City Rollers, Bye Bye Baby. And we see that Sam, her son, is, like, seems really kind of sad and Daniel's doing his damnedest to like try and pull it out of him as best he can. Like what's going on kid? Like, you know, her, his mom just died. This is mm-hmm. really tragic. And it's clear that it was like cancer or something because, you know, she's been able to plan out her funeral. So clearly this, they've been living with illness and sadness and sickness. And the only thing that is tearing apart Sam right now is the fact that he's in love with a girl named Joanna and she doesn't even know that he exists. 
And, he, you know, he's so earnest and cute mm -hmm. and sweet. And that's the problem with this movie, because that cute kid deceives people into thinking that this movie is decent. <laughs> it does. It does. He's so cute. He's so cute and sweet and guileless, except his stepfather's teaching him a very, like, a bad lesson. <laughs> like, if you chase a girl hard enough, mm -hmm. she will love you. Mm -hmm. Um, And, like... It's just, oh my gosh, it's so much. It is so much. So uh, he comes up eventually with the plan because he finds out that Joanne is leaving and he wants to get her attention like one big time before she leaves. And he decides that the way to do that is to learn how to play drums in the, in the actual Christmas pageant thing that they're doing um, so that he can be near her. But like this kid has never played an instrument in his life. And it also makes me wonder if he's practicing at home, what is he doing at school? Like, is he like just trying to stay one step ahead of like rehearsals at school for this song? Like what's happening? Well, and who was going to play the drums before him? Like, were they right, just waiting right. for someone to pick up the drums to, to do this performance and more importantly he doesn't start learning how to play the song like it's like a week and a half out according to the timeline that we're given on the screen it's like a week and a half out when he's decided he's going to learn the drums and he's then playing every day much to daniel's upset because i mean listening to somebody who's good play the drums all the time can get annoying listening to a, a child bang around like that like my mom bought my um, her niece and nephew a drum set when they were toddlers just to be mean to her sisters. Oh, that's real mean. <laughs> that's really mean. Yeah. I mean, they loved it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really mean. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, her her sisters deserved it, but you know, they they had like given me very annoying gifts, and so these oh, were so younger. Turnabout. Yeah, turnabout is fair play. So yeah, yeah. I, I think there was like a tambourine involved, and Ooh. yeah, Ooh. So, maybe yeah, a recorder. That's... I want to say, yeah, not great. Yeah. So we get to the final. We get to the actual performance where. Uh, Sam is playing the drums happily along and we have little Joanna singing all I want for Christmas is you of course um, and you know she does a really good job and the teachers are silly and <laughs> everybody's dancing and playing along and Sam thinks for like one second Joanna is like singing directly to him but then she just starts pointing at everybody and he's like well shit that was he in my so head. Angry. <laughs> mm -hmm. He's like a, he's a little like he's a little he's a little tiny incel in that moment. <laughs> but in in but in his defense, he was just gonna let it go. Yeah. He was gonna let it go and like just get on with his life. But no, damn Daniel's like you can't let her go without telling her how you feel. And so we chase Joanna and her family off to the airport, where. You know, she's well ahead of him in security. And so little Sam has to basically break a lot of laws 
<laughs> into a mad dash through the airport to get to her just to say hi. That's it. <laughs> and I, I did see a theory somewhere that like Liam Neeson's character in Love Actually was the same as his character in Taken. That it was just like that. That's how he acquired his special set of skills. That might make me like Love Actually more if that's if that's the real reason his setup. No, if it was if Love Actually was tied into the Taken universe, I could get behind that. I mean, I like I. Uh, it would be sort of, it would be a cooler movie if there was like more adventure. Because like I think we've all seen like the sort of Lost City. Oh yeah. Trailer. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, let's bring back the adventure romance, the romancing the stone. Let's bring it back. Yes. Objectively awesome. Oh yeah. I can't tell you how excited I am for the Lost City. I've watched that trailer like. Many, many times <laughs> since it came out. I cannot well, wait. I mean, honestly, just look, they need to host an extra special screening for us. Like, you know, if, if it's just an online screening and give out like maybe 30, 60 invitations and have like a Zoom or something afterwards, I that's the marketing they need to do for this movie. And I need a tie in novel. Like, Number one, I need a tie-in novel. I don't care if at this point it comes out like a month after. They just need to give me a tie-in novel. I would, I would put like I would throw out my schedule to write that tie-in novel. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people would. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Like, just let me do it. Let me write for Sandy and Tatum, Channing Tatum. I call him Chatham. Okay. Okay. So anyway, so he <laughs> so he gets to the he gets to the airport. The only thing, you know, he can say is hi and like he's just like mesmerized by the fact that she actually knows his name. And he's just so happy. Like that's all he needs. And then we get the icing on the cake when she runs back and gives him a kiss. Like little Sam has won. Um, yeah. and yeah. <laughs> their, their tie up is that, you know, she does eventually come back to London. I don't know if it's like for a visit or for, you know, for the summer or something, but like, they're still in touch. And as we know from the, uh, Red Nose Day special that they did, these two do get married. So they get a happily ever after, even though. Oh, I didn't know that. That's great. I didn't know that because I never saw the Red Nose Day special. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, you know, they, they do get a happily ever after. Like, part of it is they're telling everybody that they just got engaged. And it's just, it's, it's so that's cute. Um, cute. I'm happy for them. But <laughs> the story is so implausible. Yeah. And, like, also doesn't um, Daniel meet someone who looks exactly like his dead wife? No, he meets somebody who looks like Claudia, Claudia Schiffer. Schiffer. Who, who is Claudia Schiffer. Is Claudia yeah, Schiffer. Yeah, yeah, who is Claudia Schiffer. And his uh, his dead wife wanted him to go be with Claudia, Claudia Schiffer. Schiffer. Okay. So right. that that's what it is. That's how we tie it up. Um, so Which yeah, is so- implausible five weeks after her funeral. <laughs> I was like, mm. That's... That's what I take issue with. I was like, that is such a short timeline. You could have had that funeral happen like before the story started. Give him some yeah. time to process. Although but... I've heard like some of the widowers at like some of the re- some of the retirement communities in Florida, like as soon as their <laughs> wife, you know, dies, they they have ladies coming up coming around. Yeah. Like, right there. Yeah. There's something about widowers that they get 
like massive attraction, especially the older guys. But like, you know, he's Liam Neeson and he's got a cute kid. Like, I'm sure he's the single dad at school. People are knocking on his door. Yeah. I did see somebody say um, that they had wished that uh, Liam Neeson and Emma Thompson's character got together at the end rather than. Uh, oh, yeah, Emma- she, like, because for a second there, I was like, well, weren't they related? And then I was like, no, 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 they're not related. <laughs> yeah. Were they just friends? Just, yeah, I they wasn't were just quite friends. sure what their connection they, was. They were just okay. friends. Um, I'm not sure if, like, they met through his dead wife or whatever, but they were just friends. And they seemed to have, like, a close enough relationship that he felt like he could call her when he was feeling emotionally distraught. Um over things so they were they were close enough in that respect um which brings us to one of like the worst stories in the whole thing oh no uh yeah um (laughs) harry karen and mia um yeah (laughs) so i guess harry who's played by alan rickman r.i.p uh i mean i don't want to hate alan rickman but i hate him in this you hate him so much, especially guys like he's like trying to play matchmaker at one point. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't seem yeah. like an awful human being. He's like the director of a design agency and he has a secretary, Mia, who um, turns down Colin earlier in the movie as to be understandable. But Mia is like super duper into him and like she is flirting outrageously and opening her legs all basic instinct style at him and it's like he's doing everything yeah is this how richard curtis thinks like women seduce people i think think he thinks that how that's how german women seduce people because i'm pretty sure me is german it was just uh so maybe like it's like the German women and the American women were, have loose morals, and so, mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah, gross. It was just it was very gross and also very unprofessional. Like he would lose your job in the real world. Mm-hmm. Like, even even in two thousand three, I feel like that was like frowned upon in the workplace. Yeah, that whole uh, that whole um, office was like an HR nightmare. nightmare. Oh, yeah. he, he was warning people about like another co-worker like at the party he was like oh watch out for this guy because he gets handsy but i don't know maybe don't invite him to the party yeah yeah or maybe you know don't let him stay in your office right if he's getting handsy with people i don't know mia is just overtly sexual with him at all times and like at first he's like kind of like avoiding it and then he starts to get into it you know he has this like salacious conversation with her where you know he's asking what does she want for Christmas and she's just being very flirtatious with him and he seems a little bit distressed but also it's very clear that like he likes walking on the wild side about this a little bit and poor Karen who's just doing her damnedest to make lobster costumes and hold her family together um you know, who hasn't really had, like, any, like, you know, kind of thrilling stuff for herself. Because, like, at one point, he, she saw him looking at the jewelry counter, and she makes the joke that, you know, you always get me a scarf every Christmas. Mm -hmm. Why would, why would now be any different? She's just 
going about her life being like the best damn wife and mother that she can be and they go to this christmas party where mia is dressed in red and wearing devil horns um like of of all the theme off theme (laughs) just like of all the things that this man has done directing wise that are like just overt and over the top the devil horns in the red dress is just just a little too on the button i'm sorry mm-hmm. yeah um and so he dances with her for with at a slow song with his wife standing there in front of his whole fucking company and he's just laughing in a door it's like it's it, like, I was like, every time I see that scene, I want to crawl out of my skin. Poor Karen's just standing there, like, doing her damnedest to, like, keep a good stiff upper lip. And when they go home that night, she's making def- self-deprecating jokes about herself and her weight and how she feels and her outfits. And, like, he's doing the bare minimum to, like, make her feel better. Um, and she, so she just flat out mentions, like, your secretary, hey, be careful there. And he's just playing ignorant. Like, he doesn't know damn well that he's playing with fire on purpose at this point. And so she just, he comes home late one night and he refuses to answer where he's been. And she finds this necklace, this, the, the world's ugliest necklace. I It is not a That was necklace. heartbreaking. And it's hard. Yeah, it is. It's truly heartbreaking. She finds the necklace. She's like, oh, he's finally going to do something different for Christmas. He's He bought me an ugly necklace, but he bought me something different. And when they go to open presents on Christmas Eve, it's the perfectly shaped box. He opens it up and it's what? Joni Mitchell. It's a Joni Mitchell compilation, which is a shitty gift for your wife to begin with. I don't care how much she loves Joni Mitchell, but come on. You bought your secretary what is an expensive, ugly necklace and you bought your wife a compilation of Joni Mitchell. No. I'm enraged. And you could you could kind of sense that they were going to do this to Emma Thompson when you realized what the wardrobe department on this <laughs> movie was doing to Emma Thompson. Because, like... <laughs> yeah, that velvet number she wears to the Christmas party is very matronly. It is. It is. I mean... Just another example of Richard Curtis hating English women. Wait, Jillian, don't you don't you do costuming? I do. I'm a, a specialty costumer for for film and TV. So this entire uh, movie, like when when I saw that um, this was up for auction and it was Love Actually, like the first image in my brain was of Kira Knightley's hideous wedding dress, um, and the little the little fluffy feathers that you see like full like full frame um and so I was like oh I gotta talk about this because I hate it so much and the costuming of the time is such a time capsule for like early aughts fashion which in my opinion is pretty terrible um oh yeah but like it's it's 10 times worse because it's early aughts English fashion (laughs) Which we were bad enough over here, but they went in a very different direction in some way. We could have a whole conversation about how they dress the American women versus the English women versus, I guess, Mia yeah. being German. Maybe that's why she gets to be mm-hmm. a sexier character. Um, mm-hmm. But like Laura Linney's American in the, and she's so, also dressed down. Yeah. 
Okay, but here's the thing. Laura Linney's character was supposed to be English. Oh, um, that makes so much more sense. But he kept saying, he kept saying, I want a Laura Linney like actress. And his partner was just like, Emma was just like, just go get Laura Linney. I see. See, that's also why she's unfulfilled as an American woman, because American women are all fulfilled here. Mm-hmm. But as an American, but as an American woman, she's unfulfilled because this character was supposed to be English. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I like I. I want to punch Carl in the face, and I hate wanting to punch that actor in the face because I think he's very handsome. But I want to punch Carl in the face in this movie because he's he's he sucks. Like <laughs> he sucks, but also she sort of sucks too. She does. Yes, yes, that yes. Whole yes. storyline, not to jump ahead, is like one of them that like bothers me the most. Maybe second to this, uh, to Karen's story because I just ugh. yeah yeah. But yeah, they dress her so dowdily and. You know, she's got, like, the full-on mom haircut, and, yeah, it's it, it, it's why it's that, like, that much more heartbreaking when she runs into her brother at the talent show later, and she's just, like, so happy to see him. He, he she doesn't even real he's there really to be with Natalie, but, like, she's just so happy to see her big brother because she is having a really bad fucking day. Mm-hmm. And uh oh, Emma Thompson's just so heartbreaking in this. Like she is. And I only want the best for any Emma Thompson character. Like I want her drunk dancing at an Adele concert <laughs> as like a character. We deserve that. Just mm-hmm. once. Just give it to us. Like it we you see it a little bit in Beatrice in uh, Much Ado About Nothing. Um we need that in like a modern contemporary setting. Yeah, I, like I want to play. I want her to play like a mom in like one of my and like if they ever made make one of my books into a movie, I feel like she would be a, like a good Andy heroine's mom. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's that's the sad story there, and you know she confronts him as they're leaving the as they're leaving the nativity concert. Uh, you know she's like, you know, do I leave? Or do I stay knowing that, like, everything's going to be a little less good? Um, And he's, like, he's heartbroken because he knows he hasn't done anything, but he has also crossed the line sufficiently enough that it's problematic. And he's he's ruined their happy marriage now. Mm -hmm. And she's just, she's a little bit sad now forever. And so when they meet up at the airport at the end, she's, she's like, you know, yeah, let's go home. Dad's here. All right. Like there is no, you never feel like she ever gets like any joy or fulfillment back in her life. I mean, I want to tell myself that maybe they, like, go see Esther Perel and, like, fix their shit <laughs> and, like, and, like, move on to, like, a happier place. But that's <laughs> just me, like, rewriting it so it can be an HGA. <laughs> yeah, like, if, if, if it were, if we wanted to actually give her an HGA, like, if he met her at the airport with something, like, he, but he comes with nothing for her. It's just dad is here. And let's go home. And it's just, it's so sad and depressing. Yeah, just one, um, like, gesture of change. Like, that he he is make, taking some step to improve their relationship. But, but nothing. And maybe it's just how she plays it and being such a good actress that I'm just like, oh, no. her The rest of her life is, is ruined. It's sad. <laughs> like, I, I feel so bad. I feel so bad for them. Um, 
there's like there's no happiness from there. It's like it is. It's tragic. I was reading. Um, Jenny Holiday has a new book out called Duke. Actually, it's like a Christmas romance. It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do talk about love actually because you know it's the title, and she like talks about how it's and and I was talking to Jenny about the book and she was talks about how it's um, truly a romantic tragedy um, that they dressed up and marketed as a romantic comedy and so you really get that there like mm-hmm. it's like there's a mix of like HEAs and not mm-hmm. HEAs but it's like it would never feel complete as a romantic comedy because of this storyline and the the Laura Linney storyline. Well, there was, um, there was, cause I, I was like Googling around about like people's opinions and thoughts about, uh, the movie. And there was this piece in mother Jones that was a direct reaction to a piece in the Atlantic. And one of the things he says is love actually is in fact, less a film about love as it is a film about people who think they are in love. Almost all the stories center around people who either early on or before the film even begins figure out that they're nuts about someone and then they spend five weeks before Christmas wondering, what do I do now? It's a bit like Hamlet, but with romantic gestures instead of, you know, death. (laughs) (laughs) And this was in support of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is a romantic tragedy. No one ends up dead. Yeah, Except, you know, Joanna. Joanna. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so that was poor, poor, poor Harry, Karen, and Mia. Um, not poor Mia. Mia can go take a long walk off a short cliff. Um, let's talk about Carl and what's her name? What's her face? Laura Linney. Yeah, <laughs> Carl, the enigmatic designer. Oh, gosh. I can't even remember what her name is. Where is it? Sarah? Sarah. That's her name. So, Sarah uh, works for uh, Alan Rickman's character at this design firm, and she does Lord knows what because she's on her phone all damn day long talking to her brother. Um, And she's worked there for a few years, and she has been in love with one of their designers since the moment she started, basically. Um, and I mean, wouldn't you? He's played by Rodrigo Santiago, who is who who is gorgeous now, but like back then was like I was looking at and I realized like how much of a baby mm-hmm. he was then. An incredibly ripped, shredded, so beautiful, gorgeous so beautiful. baby. <laughs> but he's like he's like a baby. <laughs> compared to now um and he has this kind of like wide-eyed stare at certain points too where i was like do you, do you know what's going on right now i'm not i'm not sure <laughs> he looks like a doe yeah. he looks like a little doe <laughs> and i like i couldn't believe at first that that was like the same person who played like xerxes in like the 300 movies i was like this is not the same person but i was like oh wait this is the same person like you know 10 years apart yeah, yeah. He, he was like he was in his twenties. I don't think he was like older than like twenty five when he did this. Um, Maybe. Yeah, I think it's like about the same amount of. It, it's the same age gap between him and Laura Lenny as it is between Colin Firth and the woman who plays Aurelia. That's like fifteen um, years. Oh, which which tells you what what Richard Curtis thinks about age gaps <laughs> and gender. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. 
but anyway, so it's very clear that she's into him and Alan Rickman like takes her aside and she's like, he's also into you. So what the hell are you waiting for? Like, take a chance. You're both in love with each other. You both really like each other. Just take a chance. Um, and nothing really comes to fruition until the night of the holiday party where they dance. Um, and you know, it's very clear they're into each other. And she has like her first five minute span where she's not getting a phone call from her brother. And it's like, let's go home. Um, walk me home, take me home. And they go back to her place and they kiss and it's like, oh shit, it's going to happen. And she does the quick mad dash to like clean up her like pre-party prep, which I thought was very accurate. (laughs) And he comes up and they start to start to get it on. And, you know, just as her top is coming off, but who should call her brother to ask to speak to the Pope. Um, he needed to get the Pope on the phone and it's very clear that this conversation is nonsensical and it's not like it's with somebody who is like romantic in nature. Um, but it is like, what the hell is going on? And it continues to happen a couple more times. Um, to the point where, you know, he's like, well, clearly this isn't happening. And Mm -hmm. Carl, uh, after another call, Carl just like picks up his shit and leave. And she's upset, obviously, for good reason. To be that close to having sex with that man. Mm -hmm. And then he literally walks out your door. Like, uh, I can see why she's like so sad looking. Um, and we go and we see her with her brother who clearly, um, I'm going to guess he's like schizophrenic or something like that. And he's in a care facility and she's visiting with him. And as she says, they're, they're all that each other has in the world. Their parents are dead. You know, she loves him. She loves her brother and she wants to take care of him deeply. And part of the way that she does that and shows that is by answering his phone calls all the time. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there was such a, there's like such an ableist Mm -hmm. sort of like angle to that story because like it just, it sort of, you know, communicates that like caring for a family member who has, you know, mental illness or who's dealing with mental illness is a sort of all-encompassing thing that like destroys her life when, you know, that's not, not the case. Or it doesn't have to be. And no, it doesn't have to be. And he's uh, he said in like like interviews and stuff that he feels that like this is just another portrait of love and like her loving her brother and caring for her brother is what's most important in her life. And this is her showing love. And like, mm. is it though? No. no. I mean, because like answering the phone calls, I don't think because the phone calls are nonsensical. It's clear he doesn't, like, you know, have a firm grasp of reality. So, like, her not answering the phone calls to, like, care for, like, a basic need for herself of, like, human connection, of, like, romantic connection. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I do think that's a basic need. Is just, it, it's it's crappy. <laughs> like, it's just so crappy. I hate it. He, he sets up yeah. the brother to be the, like, antagonist in her story. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. It's like you could have like I see that he was aiming for this sort of like familial sibling love, but then you don't have it end with her like clearly losing out on a man that she cares for and a man who 
one of my like favorite parts of their storyline is when they're in bed together after she's gotten the first phone call and he says to her like life happens things happen we we do the best we can with it and he's very understanding and i was like that that could have been a perfect setup for them to have Mm -hmm. uh like their romantic storyline still happen and still show her her love with her brother that's not that's not yeah, the direction like the romance the romance way to take it would have been to like have her like have him like in, have her invite him in and him be a support to her yeah, absolutely and like it could have been so good but it was so bad and more importantly like they play it off as this is the first time he's actually being confronted with the fact that she's getting these phone calls all the time yeah. when if they've been working together for several years and it's yeah. it's very clear that like this is something that continuously interrupts her life why is this brand new why is this a shocker why can't you turn your phone off for the 15 minutes for him to go to town on you like <laughs> Also, why didn't Carl make the first move? If they were both aware of it, why did why did they have to wait till Laura Linney's character to like make the first move? He could have done it. Maybe Carl didn't want to be part of the HR nightmare. Ah. Yeah, <laughs> smart man. He, he seems like kind of a shy, hot guy, and um, you know, he waited for their manager to make it <laughs> everybody's problem. Um, yeah. So, and it ends. I think that's one of like the only stories that we don't see end in the airport of happiness yeah. arrival section. Um, the ending of their story is her visiting with her brother on Christmas day and sharing gifts. Like if this was, if this was actually a romance, Carl would have been sitting right there next to her. Exactly. Meeting mm-hmm. her brother. Like, mm-hmm. but again, this character was supposed to be English and English women can't be happy. <laughs> The constitutionally <laughs> incapable of it. Um, okay, so that's that very sad story. Um, let's go on to somebody else who also did not get the romantic fulfillment that he really wanted um, and features a lot of costuming nightmares. Juliet, Peter, and Mark. Uh, so we first meet... Uh, Juliet, Peter, and Mark at a church on Juliet and Peter's wedding day. Um, Mark is the best man, and the very quick introduction that we get between him and Peter is that clearly Mark is the person who, like, pulls a lot of pranks um, in their friend group, and he's like, you know, it's my wedding day, no pranks today, right? Um, And we get to see Juliet in this awful travesty of a headpiece, and that, like, sweater cover up that like when you take off the sweater the dress isn't that bad that was like, meant to be so I looked this up because I was very curious about the designer so the designer has like done a lot of really great work she um did like Forrest Gump uh my favorite she did Death Becomes Her um she did a few uh, like like uh one of the um Indiana Jones movies she's done a lot of great stuff but that wedding dress was supposed to be just a two-piece, not the jacket at all. And we see it in the um, in the reception. So that was meant to be yeah. the wedding dress. That's what he wanted her to wear. But then the costume designer was like, that's too much for a church. She has to be covered up. And so that's where that little like sweater jacket feather 
monstrosity came from. Yeah. Well, that's right. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So awful sweaters aside, um, as they're departing the church, we get Mark's good prank for the wedding, which they have, um, oh God, I can never remember that guy's name, but like, he was like, actually like kind of a big artist, um, over there at the time to come out and sing, um, uh, the song, I think it was, was that a Beach Boys song? Beatles? I don't remember. I don't remember. It, yeah, it was a Beatles song, I think. Was, yeah. Um, was yeah. It, was it Robbie Williams was singing? Was, who no, was it? No, no, no. No, it's, it's, oh God. And it's All You Need Is Love, right? Is that the Yeah. Song? Yeah. Yeah, they're singing All You Need Is Love. I can't remember. I can't remember his name. But, like, he was, like, he, he was, like, moderately successful over there at the time. So, like, it was, like, actually kind of a deal for him to come out, which is why, why everybody's, like, oh, my gosh. Um, anyways. So that was like his really nice gift to the wedding. And we go to the reception again, where Colin is running around <laughs> being a jackass. Um, and Laura Lenny's character is there and she sits down next to Mark and cause she sees Mark gazing at this couple dancing, like kind of forlornly. And she just assumes that Mark is in love with Peter. <laughs> and he's like, no, that's not happening at all. Um, so that at least clarifies that he's not in love with Peter. So why does he look so sad at such a happy wedding? Is it the awful DJ who is playing and they called it puppy love? <laughs> um, possibly. Uh, so we find out that Mark actually runs this gallery uh, where they had this art exhibit where there's just like photos of people with Santa, nude people with Santa hats um, on various body parts. Because <laughs> that is so arty. If I, you know, if I'm trying to think of something arty, it's definitely nude people with Santa hats just on their, on their, right? Bodies. Little tiny yeah. Santa hats it, on their nipples, like highest, yeah. highest level it's, part. It's really funny. Um, I, I didn't dig out like my old copy to watch it because I, I saw it was on demand like for freeform or whatever. So I was watching the freeform edited for TV version and that has like completely different artwork behind them. Ooh. Like when he's on the Ooh. phone with Peter, instead of the boobs with the tiny Santa hat nipples, he's like standing in front of dude's junk. Like it's really, <laughs> it's really weird. Is that better? Like. <laughs> I don't think so, but apparently that's what they thought for, like, TV edit. I don't know. Anyways, um, and they totally take out the uh, the stand-in storyline together, too. Oh. So, like... Oh, yeah. Wow. I think I've seen it on television, and you do miss that part. Mm -hmm. And um, when you get to the prime minister thing, instead of, like, saying fuck shit and all this other stuff, she kisses him on the cheek because he says, at least you didn't kiss me on the cheek. And, like, she kisses him on the cheek. Oh. Like, instead of cursing, that's that's how they edited it for TV. So they filmed a whole other option? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Apparently. Okay. Apparently. Um, so, anyway, so, yeah, so he works at this art gallery, um, that's where the, they have a holiday party, that's the interconnectedness of his story with everybody, um, and 
at the gallery, you know, Peter is begging him to talk to Julia because she needs something. And, you know, you have to be nice to my wife, you know, if we're going to remain friends and all this other stuff. And Juliet is just begging for some extra photo, some extra footage from her wedding because her actual videographers and photographers were awful and they got nothing. So she just wants, she saw him with the camera all damn day long. He wants, she wants to see what he has. And she basically ambushes him with banoffee pie which okay um that would also not sway me to do anything for you <laughs> um and she's like just bombards into his house and just like oh here's the footage and just puts it on and just just all up in his shit and he's just like frozen and she's watching this video footage and he realizes that like everything he took on the wedding day was just of her nothing of her and peter just of her it's very stalker footage it's a real creeper that's (laughs) i'm sorry but that's like a beginning of a thriller like this is how it starts Mm -hmm. i'm pretty sure that's how like several like 90s thrillers Mm -hmm. happened like sliver and like all that kind of shit like stalker it's just it's not a good look um and he's freaked she's a little freaked out and he's freaked out he's got caught and so he immediately just runs out of his own apartment and just leaves her there all to the tunes of dido (laughs) (laughs) my question is what kept turning around to come back and i was like what what is he planning to do if he goes back like what what is the mindset yeah. there? He has to fake his own death and and adopt a oh, new yeah. identity at this point. That's the oh, yeah. only way to salvage the situation. I just I just find it really funny that they are playing here with me, which is like kind of borderline creepy, but like in this situation it becomes like full on stalker song. <laughs> <laughs> so he walks off into the into the day leaving her in his apartment and the next time we finally see him, he is standing outside of of her home somehow he's lucky enough that she answers the door and not peter and like, what are you gonna do with the cute cards then are you gonna like pretend you're in love with peter at that point i don't know i don't know throw, throw them into the middle of the street and just mm-hmm. be like hey my dude corner Fake her in the corner her in the bathroom yeah. like fake your own death adopt a new identity that's yeah. all you can do all you can do um and he's got the like iconic cards that we all know and love now and have been redone to death but done very well in an episode of ted lasso as of late um (laughs) i liked the kate mckinnon version where she's pretending to be hillary clinton um (laughs) that that one that one lives in my mind forever yeah oh yeah that one was that one was awesome um so he's like you know basically saying that yes he was in love with her um and he's sorry he's gonna try not to make it awkward and he just needed her to know what's going on and he's like he promises nothing nothing more of this and he's like okay I'm done walking off into the sun walking off into the night and she runs out and she kisses him I hate it so much because in the moment you're like oh how cute cue cards I like the idea of it but when you think about it he just gave his best friend's wife like a lie that she has to keep for her from her husband for the rest of her life if she doesn't want to break up his friendship like he gave her a burden in that moment I mean honestly I wouldn't even think twice about it I would tell (laughs) 
my husband everything. <laughs> I would be like, I would go inside, pour him a big, big bourbon, and be like, listen. We need to talk about you and your creepy friends. Also, once more to, like, the ridiculous age gaps in this. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Kira was, like, 18 uh-huh. when they filmed this. Uh-huh. Like, she had just, she turned 18 on set or something like that. Ew. I, like, had ew, to look ew, up the ew. ages of everyone. And, like, she was 18. Mark was 30. Um, what's the husband's name again? Peter. 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 He is, like, 27 or something. And I know that... I- or 26. Everybody was well older than her her because <laughs> she was a baby. Let's see, he's 77 and she's 85. So about 12 years. So yeah. So maybe he was about 27. Yeah. Okay. Wait, no, that's not how that works. I don't do math well. I don't know. <laughs> I do know that anyways, that Sam, the little kid that we see in the beginning, he mm-hmm. was like four or five years younger than Kira Knightley. Yeah, he was like a he was like 14. Yeah. Or he was like she was like 12 or four, 13 or 14 when they filmed it. So he was there there was there was a tinier age gap between the two of them mm-hmm. than it was for her and him. So weird. So weird. Anyway, so yeah, it's just the again the grossness of age gaps and who gets to stay together mm-hmm. and be happy. Um <laughs> um okay so yeah so that's the end of that and i think they actually pick him up at the airport at one at in the end scene um juliet and peter pick him up at the airport so like they're all big one happy family i i think mark is coming back to like no one holding a sign for him i think he's coming back home alone (laughs) in the real world (laughs) didn't he pick up um aurelia and oh yeah yes and uh and colin first and that connection i didn't understand i didn't understand that either i think they're friends but we never see them be friends before that well because like jamie so he so jamie sees sees his girlfriend getting it on with his brother because he goes to the wedding alone yeah okay yes yeah that's right because they're going to yeah they're going to peter and juliet they're supposed to go to Peter and Juliet's wedding together, but she's sick. She's homesick, so she she stays and he goes to the wedding alone. And he decides he's going to check in on her before the reception, and that's how she catch he catches her with his brother. Okay. Um, which your options are Colin Firth or that guy, yeah. and you chose <laughs> that guy. Okay. Terrible choices. Terrible choices made by all. Well, you know, English women bad choices. Um. <laughs> They don't get to be happy. No, no, no happiness. Um, so he, so he's absolutely distraught, and so he goes to the south of France to work on his crime novel, where he at some chateau that I guess he stays at all the time, and his usual, uh, I guess housekeeper person found him a new person to come help out with him while he's there, which again I guess he's there for about a month. Um, yeah. he, he gets, he goes there pretty early on in the five weeks and it's Aurelia who's Portuguese, doesn't speak, speak a lick of English or a lick of French. And so everybody is just completely, nobody can really converse with each other. Um, he's a bumbling writer who in the age of Carrie Bradshaw still types on <laughs> a typewriter mm-hmm. instead of a laptop. Um, and he takes that laptop 
uh, sorry, sorry, said typewriter and all his loose pages, all of his loose pages out into the wind. Um, <laughs> and he's only using a coffee cup to hold down at least half of his novel that he's working out, mm-hmm. working on just and just mm. bad decision. Yeah. making. Mm-hmm. And I, I seem to remember they fall in love because she lifts up the coffee cup. All of the pages go into this water and then she like undresses and jumps in the water to get the pages. And that's that's the love story. This is oh, this is just like another uh like non-British woman gets to be sexy and we get like the slow pan over her undressing and the focus on her lower back tattoo. And like I think that's her personality is the lower back tattoo. Um and yeah, that now they're in love. Now they're in love. It, it, well, that's that. That's not. That's not exactly when they fall in love. They're supposed to be falling in love during their very quiet car rides where they can't talk to each other. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. So, like, the best thing a woman, the most lovable thing a woman can be, is silent. Okay. Noted. Yes. Noted. Yes. <laughs> work on that um they she climbs into the into the lake to get his pages and he's like no you don't have to get my pages he jumps in the in the lake too and they're both swimming around saving his apparently crappy pages and they're later on talking to each other and they can't understand each other obviously but they're exact saying the exact same thing so clearly they're simpatico um and they, they kind of, I guess, find some sort of allegiance where they they like each other, but they don't understand each other. But they're, I guess they're falling in love with each other somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and he decides to go back to England, to go back, back to his life. And while he is home in London, he's taking language courses so he can learn Portuguese. And... On Christmas Eve, he's dropping off gifts to his family. He's supposed to be celebrating with his brother, who I don't know how he's still talking to him. How do you show up? Like, I, like I'd be like, no, I'll send presents for, for the children in the post. Like, period. And the second he sees his whole family, he's like, I'm sorry, I can't do this. And he drops the gifts and leaves. And then everybody's going, I hate Uncle Jamie. Like, fuck y'all. <laughs> <laughs> You invited the man who ruined his life to the same party. <laughs> he's supposed to stay. Like, even though I know he's running off to go be with Aurelia, just seeing his brother is should be catalyst enough mm-hmm. and understandable enough that he wants to leave the situation. Um, and, you know, he hops on the next plane or maybe he went through the channel to France. And there he is with Aurelia at her family's uh, a, at some restaurant that she works at serving and her and her father and sister just go trudging through the streets of whatever town they're in so that they can go to Aurelia so that he can tell Aurelia that he wants to marry her. A woman he <laughs> has never held a full conversation <laughs> with in the course of the three weeks he's known her, uh-huh. two of those weeks, he's he's known her for five weeks, Two of those weeks, he's not even seen her. Like, mm-hmm. what the hell? And it's supposed to be touching because it's Colin Firth. And they both learned how to sort of brokenly speak each other's language so that they can get married. Honestly, I'm not not rooting for them. <laughs> I mean, I'm rooting for them. But, like, maybe don't propose marriage, but just be like, hey, 
I'm here to like to be with you. I can now speak your language language. So let's like try this out. Marriage just seems like a big, a big leap to make at that point. It's a very big leap. It's a very big leap. I I mean it's some faded mate stuff right yeah. there. Like honestly. <laughs> Like, that's the only way that story works, is if, like, they smell each other and they realize that this is the person I'm meant to be with. Someone's, like, we is vibrating right now when they see each other. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, I feel like 2021 is the year that we insert um, Ice Planet Barbarians into as many conversations not involving Ice Planet Barbarians. (laughs) You win, you win. (laughs) Can we, can oh, we talk yeah. about the fat phobia in this uh, in this story? Oh, oh God. There's so much in this, especially in this story, because it's like the, uh, the poking the fun at her sister's yeah. weight and like, oh, God, so gross. But like, it's all throughout everything. I mean, down to Emma Thompson uh-huh. saying that like she can only fit in clothes that Pavarotti wears because she's gained so much weight and like just like ev- uh, Natalie oh god natalie that's the entire story that is the entire story yeah that natalie has big thighs like the fuck where but okay (laughs) like it's also the bigger the thighs to crush your skull exactly like that's how i feel natalie should have been like pumping iron at the gym to be like yeah my thighs Mm -hmm. are big yeah it's the whole of natalie's story natalie the i guess she's a catering manager at number 10 um and we've got the new prime minister played by hugh grant and the he best part is... of the movie is him like dancing around <laughs> oh 10. yeah Fine. oh yeah like, that's, a, that's the best part of the whole thing <laughs> it's very silly it. but it is the best part um and you know they meet on the first day and natalie is just like kind of like a potty mouth and just super nervous but like he puts her at ease and you know, he makes jokes about like, who do I have to shag around here to get some biscuits? And here comes Natalie <laughs> with a tray. And at the time, Martine McCutcheon was like, actually, she was fairly popular um, overseas. Like she had been in EastEnders for like a while. And I think she like had like kind of a budding pop career. Um, so like, she was like kind of known, but she says that like, after this movie, people like, thought like she was like, huge star and like almost unapproachable um I was kind of really sad that like I I didn't don't think she like did any like romantic comedies after this which was kind of sad because she was really kind of lovely and cute and I would have adored that so you know they kind of have like kind of a flirtatious patter but they're like they're they were filling each other out and nobody is overstepping. Um, but, you know, she shares about the fact that she's living with her parents in the same neighborhood that her, that his sister actually lives in. And she moved back because she broke up with her ex-boyfriend because he like called her fat and said that like, nobody wants somebody with like big thighs and all this other stuff. And, you know, he's like actually being kind of nice mm-hmm. about it. Like he's like not being like overt about like, talking about her body or anything but he says you know i'm the prime minister if you want i can send somebody to kill him for you like that was really i love mean. that and that's, that's i would yeah. like that to be honest yeah let's kill natalie's ex-boyfriend please <laughs> and like, he's really sweet in the moment and they seem to have like kind of an easy working relationship and nobody's overstepping any bounds it's like he's really respectful of the fact that like essentially he is her boss mm-hmm. but he does like her and then here comes mr american president 
Really, Bob Thornton. Can I confess <laughs> something really terrible? But uh, I do not like understand people's attraction to Billy Bob Thornton. I don't Neither do I. No, but no. it's it's incomprehensible to me. I kind of got it, and not his character, but like to see him like dressed up and not like being made to look uh, like usually they want him to look kind of like a. Um, messy in some way I was like oh he's he's got a charm to him he's he's got cheekbones <laughs> like I don't know like he's like so this character is like the worst amalgamation of uh Bush and Clinton mm-hmm. um because I mean remember the time this is like 2000, yeah. 2002 2003 yeah. it's like right after 9-11 this is like at the height of everybody fucking hates America um, I was just gonna say there's a soup son of Trump in there just the mm-hmm. precursor <laughs> um and like you know i think this might have been like right before or right after the dixie chicks said they oh. they hate too so like it was it was very much so this character is very much a pair i'm sure like when he conceived it it was supposed to be a parody of clinton mm-hmm. but like they really shoved in a bunch of like uh bush in there too because we really so like when we get to the point where he's like uh you know disagreeing with the american president and like Mm -hmm. just like really like you know trying to drop as many blows as possible on him it's really a raw 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 Mm -hmm. moment (laughs) (laughs) more than more than like it probably reads now but like at that point it was like oh yeah we're we're giving blows we're in a very british manner <laughs> manner to the american president um and really he's just doing it because he saw the guy moving in on his girl <laughs> <laughs> it took it took romantic jealousy to get him mm-hmm. to, to grow a spine about like geopolitical <laughs> affairs <laughs> basically like you know you will see you will say fuck you to all the di- di- the diplomacy that you wanted to use with your closest ally just because he was moving in on your girl who really was just being sexually yeah. harassed because like if you mm-hmm. look at the look on her face when he walks in she looks petrified like yes. she does not look like she's enjoying no. this at all um which is why i always kind of felt kind of weird about the card that she gives him in Christmas where she's like I just got kind of like taken away by like the power of the situation and you know he's kind of irresistible and it's like I I really thought that she in no way was participating when the president was like true moving in on her she was just stuck there and he walked in on that yeah 100% I agree yeah yeah so it it's just the way she was apologetic for what happened. But I do think the fact that they focused in on the yours part of it was the most important, more, most important mm-hmm. part of the cards. Like mm-hmm. she wanted him to know that she was interested in him. And immediately he runs out into the night <laughs> to go find Natalie. All he knows is the street she lives on. And he goes door to door, knocking, <laughs> asking, you know, is Natalie fair? And they realize Mia is his neighbor. Mia is her neighbor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mia lives right next door to Natalie and her family who are all about to head out the door to go to the nativity play where everybody else is, um, including the stand-ins too, for some reason. I don't even know why they're there. Um, oh. But yeah, so everybody goes to the nativity play and he's like, fine, I'll take you. And they've got the kid with the, with the octopus costume because again, apparently there was an octopus at the nativity. 
Um, octopus and a lobster. It was a. It was an. It was an ecumenical nat- nativity. <laughs> I was very impressed by those homemade costumes, though. Like the whale, I was like, "Wow, good. that's that's some professional level stuff there." Oh yeah, these are like this. This must be like a really impressive neighborhood, mm-hmm. is all I'm saying. Um, so they get there and. It, they have kind of a quick chat in the car where she's just like, you know, I do like you and I'm interested in you. And they get they get to the concert and it's really kind of a little awkward, but like it's clear they want to talk and be with each other. So they're going behind stage and that's when they run into his sister, of course, who's so happy to see her big brother. She's like, I didn't even think you would be able to come. And it's like, oh, yeah, sure. I'm here for you. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, they're running around behind backstage where they're just trying to have a first kiss somewhere. And (laughs) they end up right behind the stage, behind the curtain, just as they finish up the performance of All I Want for Christmas. And they open the curtains and who's there smearing all of Natalie's lipstick. But the prime minister. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's like he just showed up. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I don't object to the storyline. And I think it's for the same reason we talked about when we talked about two weeks notice last year. <laughs> that um, Hugh Grant is so charming. Mm-hmm. Like, he's less of a man baby. In <laughs> he is. He's much less of a man baby. He's like, he's really, he's standing up for his country. And also, I mean, he's so charming and shaking his little tuchus. I just love him. I, mm-hmm. I love them together. Like, I think they're such a great couple. Mm-hmm. My issue is like everything that's written around them. Just yes. because of like I, I mean I know like fat phobia in, um, in like rom coms or in anything during that time was like rampant, but like I mm-hmm. remember being that age and like having weird takeaways from like having that so drilled in that she was like the I think the dad calls her plumpy like it's just constant, but they as the a couple assistant. are great like I love them together. Yeah. Yeah, the assistant who I think kind of secretly had a thing for him too, calling her like the one with the fat ass. He's like, ooh, do we call her that? <laughs> like, do, do we do that? Yeah. Like, we should be doing that. I mean, that was actually funny when he was like, <laughs> like <laughs> would, we, would we say that? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, but yeah, like just the constant talking about like her size and all of that it's just it's so gross and mm-hmm. it's, it's all played gross. for jokes and it, like you said like that is her storyline that is really their storyline mm-hmm. she's fat and people keep talking about it um but yeah they're really cute uh and they said the first scene that they filmed together was the end scene where she runs up to him and jumps on him in the airport <laughs> <laughs> that was their Aww. very first scene they filmed together breaking the yeah. ice <laughs> yeah yeah the only English woman who gets to be happy. Yeah. <laughs> Literally the only English woman. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's, Judy. It's really an advertisement. Don't skip leg day. Don't skip leg day. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So, okay. So we have covered pretty much every story except probably the one really unifying and sweet story is Billy Mac's attempt at becoming the Christmas number one, <laughs> which... I think is probably the most 
love actual love story mm-hmm. yeah. of them all it's not romantic in any fashion but it is just a story of two old codgers who have been working together since the dawn of time um and one's pursuit to like you know try and get his friend to the top and him just being a grump about it the whole way up bill nye is like very funny he's absolutely hilarious in it mm-hmm. um and it, it's just it's kind of sweet but again more of the fat phobia mm-hmm. like he's constantly calling his manager fat yeah. and like it's He's just like, whatever, Um, like as long as we get you to the top. And at the end, he does get to the top of the charts. Like I didn't realize until this movie how important it was to get the number one Christmas single because that's like not really a thing here. Like it doesn't. It's well, I mean, it's Mariah Carey every year. So we just. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like since 19, what, 94, it's been Mariah Carey. Mm -hmm. We we just all like listen to some other songs. Mm -hmm. But really, it's just. All I want for Christmas is you. And that's just a solid album altogether. Oh. True. True, true. It has, so is it a big thing in the UK? Long. Is like, is that a big deal? It is. It is. Every year, every year there is a race to who's going to be the number one Christmas oh, song. Okay. It, it's a real thing that has, that still goes on today. Um, currently, uh, Elton John, the Ed, Elton John Ed Sheeran song is at the top of the chart. Um, okay. And it's looking like it's going to stay that way. Um, but yeah, it's a thing. Uh, but yeah, so they have, they kind of have like this really funny story and like, that's kind of really what strings it along. And I really think that's the only thing about this movie that is the only reason why it has to be done in at Christmas time. Mm -hmm. Cause otherwise the story, there's nothing about it. That's very Christmassy except for maybe the nativity play, Mm -hmm. but it, it's it didn't have to play with a lobster. So. Yeah, it didn't have to be a nativity play. Like kids have stupid um, school stuff kids, all the stuff, time. All yeah. the time, all the time, all kinds of crazy performances that they have to go to. So like, it didn't have to be a nativity. It could have been anything. But the only thing about this that is legitimately Christmas is the Billy Mac and Joe song, and wanting to get the ridiculously remade "Love Is All Around" <laughs> version <laughs> to the Christmas number one single. Um, but yeah, that is, I think that's it. I think we have covered all of Love Actually, everybody's ridiculous story. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was, this was so efficient. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the only way you could do it though. Right. It is so much and it's all interconnected and somebody actually made a like flow chart we're showing like who's connected to who, which is kind Oh, I of... consulted it. I consulted it today. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been smarter to look one up because I started making one while I was watching and I very quickly gave up. I was like, this no, no. not gonna work. <laughs> um but yeah, uh so I think we've talked about some of the things that we would do to make it more romance, but are there any like are there any particular stories that you would like actually want to pull out here, pull out of here and actually make like genre romance? I think the stand-in romance could mm-hmm. be pulled out. And I mean, there's so little of it there that like you're starting from just a basic concept, but I do love the mm-hmm. idea that you have two stand-ins who have to be in very intimate situations together, but are actually incredibly shy and like slow in how they in like engage romantically so I love I love that concept um and think it could be made into a you know full book 
I think the Juliet, Mark, and Peter could be an MMF. Like, it should be a throuple. Like, I mean, I feel like, you know, whenever there's a love triangle, Romance Landia is thinking throuple. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. all I'm saying. Um, Okay. What would be your... How would you get it to a throuple, though? Because as we know... Mark is sneaking around Peter's back, you know, telling Juliet that he's in love with her. How do we get it to full on throuple? I mean, I would just like take that part out. Like, I think think it would be, I think it would be a complete reimagining of that trio. Um, Or when Laura Linney asks him and goes like, are you in love with him? He just says, yes. He could be like, yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah." (laughs) All right. So the stand-ins and... Mark, Peter, and Juliet. Any others that you would say from this insanity? No. <laughs> Other than like wanting Karen to have a whole new relationship and leave her yes. leave her husband. Yeah. yeah, Karen. Karen does need a better life rather than Harry, who doesn't even try and make it up to her in the end. Just shows up with nothing. Not even a chocolate. I'm really pissed about that. Like, yeah, nothing. Nothing. Empty-handed. And he seems it's like gross. a pretty shitty husband before that. He didn't even really know mm-hmm. she liked Joni Mitchell still. He was like, what? You you yeah. still listen to her? I was like, do you even know your wife? Well, I think I think you guys picked out the only stories worth saving from <laughs> there. Um, well, thank you so much for talking to me about this. Uh, what do you guys have going on? Andy, what about you? Um, so I do have like a Christmas thruple story called All They Want for Christmas, which is available wide. Um, and it, if you are a subscriber to the Hello Lovely Box, it's in there. If you are in the Bonkers Romance Patreon, it's also available there. Um, my next single title doesn't come out until June. It's June 14th. It's called Thank You Next. It is, it's like the springboard of the story is when I saw a guy had a situationship in law school um, as the fiance on say yes to the dress after he told me he never wanted to get married. So um, 10 years later, I uh, put that into a book and, and fictionalized it. But so that's, that's, that's the, that's the sort of inciting incident of the story. Um, but yeah, so those are my two things. Nice. What about you, Jillian? Um, so I have a free winter novella out right now called the snowman. Um, and it is basically a snowman who comes to life and is made in the heroine's like sort of perfect ideal man image. So of course his dick tastes like gingerbread. Of course he smells like a pumpkin spice latte, (laughs) everything you want for a a weekend getting over a bad breakup. Um, so yeah, that you can just download. Um, if you either go to my Instagram or Twitter or TikTok, um, which maybe we can like put it somewhere so I don't you don't have to remember what my my tags are um and then currently I'm working on my debut which should come out next spring which is a gargoyle daddy dom romance so look out for that all right well thank y'all so much um for chatting with me all this time and And that was Love Actually. I know this movie brings out a lot of strong opinions in people, both for and against, but hopefully we can all walk away from this episode agreeing that it did need to come out at Christmas time. 
On the next episode, I'll talk about another Richard Curtis movie. We're going to call it another installment in the Richard Curtis compendium. Pair this episode with the Notting Hill episode, and I think it should come as no surprise as to how I feel about this next movie. Join me for a conversation about Bridget Jones' Diary with author Vanessa King. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Be sure to leave a review on the Apple Podcast Store. Also, if you'd like to follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram, you can find it under Rom Ever After on both platforms. And if you wish to just follow me for other randomness, you can catch me at Ali is Writing on both platforms as well. Until next week. At least I didn't get too far. At least I didn't get you. No. I forgot to hit record. I was, was going to ask you if you were recording it. I was like, oh, crap. Okay. <laughs> I just saw that at the bottom. It's like, oh, no. This is not the worst, though. I once got through recording a whole entire episode um, oh, no. without hitting record. And we talked for like two and a half hours. So. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> no. All right. All right. Let's try this Can, can I make a, a very 